Hello everyone, this is Sartaj Anand, the founder of Egomonk, and welcome to Business Beyond 2030, the show where we explore the socio-economic and technological revolutions shaping our world, and the role of business in realizing the future. Business has the transformative ability to move all of us from today to tomorrow with a shared purpose. And I have the privilege to unpack complexity with the world's smartest and most compassionate business leaders and decision makers as they deliver on their promise of abundance. In today's episode, we welcome Sebastian Hub to our studio. Sebastian is the CEO of Swiss Next India and the Consul General of the Swiss Consulate in Bangalore since November 2017. He is married and a proud father of two daughters. In his professional avatar, Sebastian is constantly connecting the dots between Switzerland and India, especially in education, research, and innovation. He cares deeply about improving the state of the world and brings radical candor to each and every conversation. Thanks, Sebastian, for joining us. Uh, appreciate you taking out the time. Thank you so much for having me. So yeah, we'll just go through a few questions. We'll see what you think and hopefully you'll make sense of the world uh, together. Okay, thank you. So Switzerland has long been recognized as a global leader in innovation and competitiveness. What's the secret behind this? Sure. So so maybe I should start um, to say that actually it's not always been like that. So Switzerland being a, a leader in innovation, it's really only the last maybe 10, 15 or so years that people recognize that. Um, back in the days, like like early 20th century, actually, we were more seen as a country of peasants and, and a rural country. So that has really changed. And um, so even 25 years ago, Switzerland was sort of associated with cheese and chocolate and banks yeah. and all these kind of things. So that's also why Swissnex actually was founded to kind of change that image a little bit. And so with the current rankings, of course, you know, being on top of all, all those different innovation rankings, of course, it helps to change that image. And so my, my boss, actually, or former boss, I should say, State Secretary, uh, Mauro D'Ambrogio, he was always asked this exact same question, what's the secret sauce behind, yeah. behind Switzerland's uh, innovation uh, success? And he would say the success uh, is because exactly we don't actually have an innovation strategy. And so people okay. are always a little bit perplexed because like, <laughs> okay, what's, what's the strategy? Tell me. And, and, and so actually he says, we have no strategy. And um, of course, he said that a bit provocatively. But I think what he wants to say actually with that is, is that as a government, we don't have the answer to all the, the, the questions when it comes to innovation. But the, the role of government in Switzerland is going to set the right framework conditions. So control the regulation. Regulation is one thing, exactly. Yeah. So bring clarity, bring some security. But then even like, you know, investment in education. So, so the kind of funding you provide to uh, Swiss universities to, to even um, basic education. I mean, that is absolutely key. Having an education system that is sort of, you know, gives mobility and, and provides opportunities to all uh, youth in, in, in Switzerland. Universities are relatively cheap, actually. Yeah. So, so quite accessible as well. But then even things like, um, you know, being internationally open is, is an important sort of factor for companies that come to Switzerland and, and set up their offices. And then, of course, the like infrastructure, like, uh, you know, trains, etc. If you take the train, in fact, from, from Zurich to Geneva, it probably takes you as long from, like, you know, the airport here in Bangalore to Electronic City. Yeah. So, so, so having this kind of infrastructure also brings Switzerland as an as a innovation ecosystem much closer. Yeah, you remove the friction. Exactly. Uh, you allow larger ecosystems to coalesce, more efficiencies come into the picture. Absolutely. Yeah. More mobility, more exchange, uh, and, and that is absolutely key to uh, to innovation ecosystem, right? And and last but not least, you know, also like a sense political stability and, and sort of... So it's not... Uh, it's just politics are not very exciting, 
but but um, but at least it provides for some stability. Yeah, and and for folks who don't know, it is a direct democracy. In, yeah, exactly. In yeah. yeah, yeah. So that, I'm guessing that changes how people can actually influence the system. Absolutely. So it's it's a very uh, participative political culture, uh, not just on on a national level, but even on, on a municipal level actually. So people really or mostly feel part that they're you know they're part of this political process, and then if they find you know enough people who share the same opinion, that they can change yeah. something if they if they want. I think. Capitalism is rooted in this model that government should set the playground, so to say, and then step back and allow the market to occur on its own. That sounds like kind of what's happening there, but obviously strong institutional frameworks of law, justice, IP need to exist. And I I think those exist in, in Switzerland to a large extent. Absolutely. I think very strong uh, institutions, you know, letting the the, the businesses, startups do uh, what they do best, uh, leave the scientists do what they do best, like let them choose what they want to research on. So, so, so provide that autonomy at the same time. So, so it is a, if you want a a liberal economy, but, but with a sort of a social uh, network, right? Safety network. If someone is unemployed, you would get unemployment money, of course. So, so, so there's a certain security there as well. And um, so it's a, I personally think it's a quite good balance. So obviously, like the way you've fleshed it out in terms of the the Swiss landscape, it's quite different from what we have here in India. Mm-hmm. What do you think India can learn from Switzerland to ramp up sort of innovation per capita? We have so much human talent. It's mm-hmm. it's the scale mm-hmm. is amazing. And most people are fascinated by that. But how do we on a per capita basis sort of improve ourselves? What do you think we can learn? So, so I always find this question very difficult because, as, as you said, Switzerland and India are the almost very opposites of, of what you can compare, yeah. right? The Switzerland being a very small country, you know, 8 million people, so less people than, than Bangalore. Bangalore, right? <laughs> so it's always very difficult. And also coming like the, the if you look as I studied history, so I'm a historian by training, if you look at the historical context, like a very different journey than, uh, than India or, or other countries for that matter. Um, uh, for example, we have no natural resources. So we were forced actually to be innovative, right? We are in the midst of Europe, surrounded by, you know, huge powers. Yeah. So we had to be open. We had to be sort of neutral to, to survive, if you want. And, and nowadays, labor is extremely expensive in Switzerland. So the only way we actually can uh, differentiate ourselves is by, by being innovative, right? So, so, so all these kind of factors contribute to us being innovative. So that, that is why I find it difficult to compare. That being said, I, I think what, what applies to Switzerland is this, this sort of open approach and, and, and liberal framework conditions would also help India. And I think actually India has gone quite a bit yeah. of a journey since the 1990s, actually, in opening up and uh, in investing into research and education and making you know, India more competitive, uh, opening it up for, for other, co- uh, for other uh, companies. And so I, th- I think in, in, in that way, India is on the, on the, on the right track, personally, I believe, uh, has, has made a huge journey already. And so I think more of that actually would go in the right direction. Yeah, we have a lot of sort of evidence-based policy sort of frameworks also coming into India. There's mm-hmm. Niti Aayog, there's Epic in Delhi. So there are these frameworks emerging. And I think we are at that transition point where we want to also punch above our weight because Absolutely. we also have similar challenges. Labor cost mm-hmm. will make us uh, non-competitive in a few decades or so, which is already happening in China. So something that I was really impressed, so it's been now a bit over one and a half years that I'm in India, is like, you know, the, the youth here is so aspiring. Like they're, they're extremely uh, ambitious. And, and that, you know, Know, gives a lot of uh, I wouldn't say hope, but uh, it's, it's really motivating to see actually what, yeah. what's happening here, and it's, it's at the at foundation of of India's change actually. Yeah, the social and economic mobility is the the promise of this new generation. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So just moving on, 
At Egomong, we're building bridges to a better future life and planet. And Swissnex was similarly conceived to connect the dots between Switzerland and other emerging ecosystems. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's been your approach to immersing yourself personally mm-hmm. and the organization into this uh, complex ecosystem? Yes. So I, I think, you know, the first thing is is to, of course, you can read books about India. And I did read some books when I was back in Switzerland, but until you're actually here sitting in the traffic of Bangalore, you know, <laughs> and and then, but then going to those events and kind of seeing what kind of environment this ecosystem is is, is building up. I mean, th- th- that is absolutely key. So, so going out to events, speaking to people, having one-on-one meetings, uh, speaking to my house helpers at home, speaking to the entrepreneurs, speaking to an artist. Um, so, so, so a whole range of different people get getting those different impressions on on India. And then, of course, I was looking, uh, sorry, reading books. So one book I really like is by Nandan uh, Nilekani's uh, Imagining India. Yeah. So that is an amazing book. And it's I bought quite some, transformative. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's been, I think, 10 years now. Yeah. But sort of the approach he takes explains where India comes from, helps me to understand so much, actually. And, and I actually bought a few editions uh, and brought them back to Switzerland yeah. to, to my partners. Um, so in terms of, like, immersing the organization here in India, I think it's been the other way around. So, so I think the organization's some of my colleagues have been here for six, seven, eight yes. years, and they were helping me to to immerse, to understand uh, the the Indian context. So, so I think they they helped me to in the immersion. I think where I come in is is um, sort of also helping them to understand how maybe pe- Swiss people think, even though they have been now interacting for a couple of years, but trying maybe how you know administration, uh, government works. That's where I worked before, um, and and then bringing my own network of of, of uh, Swiss people here. So I think in, in in that way I could help sort of merging those different cultures together. This sort of lends well to my next question which is I really believe there are many Indians living mm-hmm. in India. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you look at Uttar Pradesh, for example, it has mm-hmm. the development metrics of Africa mm-hmm. uh, because it's quite different from the South. So as a foreign leader, as you engage with different stakeholders, how do you come to terms with these cultural nuances at play? How mm-hmm. do you make sense of what's right and, and what's emerging in mm-hmm. different parts of India? So, so I feel I've been, as I said, one and a half years here, and and um, I think I would need another twenty years, <laughs> to, you know, to really discover all of India and understand all these cultural nuances. So, so I think you know, back in Europe, you look at India, you look at India as a, as a country. Uh, being here, you understand that it's of course a country, but also a subcontinent. Actually, it's almost it's so it's so huge. So. So, I mean, I, I've been living now in five different countries. So I think for each country, it's true that you can't generalize, that each country has its own differences, uh, regional differences, cultural differences. Uh, and that is even more so true for India. Um, I mean, of course, I'll, I'll travel to different places. So I've been to uh, you know, Rajasthan, I've been to Lucknow, I've been to uh, Kerala and all these places. Yeah. yeah. But unfortunately, I haven't had really the time to go really out there, let's say in rural areas, for example. So I've usually stayed in the cities and and for for business. So I think that is still something I I still need to discover even more. Um, We do tell people that there's more than Mumbai and Delhi and Bangalore in India. So so we do bring them to other places. Let's say Hyderabad or Pune are quite well known, of course, here in India. Uh, maybe not that well known uh, back in, 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 in yeah. Switzerland. So, so we also take them out of those those centers and uh, and, and help them to discover uh, India. But again, I, th- I think uh, uh, it needs still many more uh, trips for me to to really see all the cultural differences. Yeah, I, I think just acknowledging where we come from is is a big step to learning about India, particularly because it's so different. No. I think also because people have come from. It's still just one generation into a liberalized economy. So we're mm-hmm. all trying to really climb this economic and socioeconomic ladder. Have you seen this in developing partnerships or engaging with stakeholders? Like, how do you approach building these 
win-win partnership situations because mm-hmm. the conventional logic is a is a zero-sum model, right? Mm-hmm. I win, you lose. So, so Swissnext is, of course, a very much partnership-driven organization. So partnership for us means really that both sites, both partners have to have a stake in, in whatever they do, that they both bring something to the table. So, so I think... We don't look at India as a developing country, of course, in some parts it, it, it is still, but but we also, you know, want the Indian part to bring something to the table and, and uh, so, uh, show some, some um, that, that he or she has an interest in, in, in collaborating with um, Swiss partners and the same for, for, for Swiss partners who come here to India. So before they come here, we have Skype discussions. We're trying to understand where they're coming from, what they're trying to achieve. See, that's not just, you know, a trip to India to kind of see and have a chat, have a meeting, but it's really we're trying to curate a conversation. Uh, and so, you know, managing expectations on both sides is, is, is really important, making sure that their objectives are aligned, making sure that maybe also the, the culture, organizational cultures are, are, are aligned. Yeah. So having those discussions on both sides and then when they come together, sort of, uh, you know, help them to understand each other and see where they come from. And then almost more importantly, after they've met, uh, keep the conversation going. So I think, you know, sometimes when we see delegations, people coming here, they are... Uh, it's a high energy. High uh, energy. <laughs> they're enthusiastic about India. They say, oh, you know, we have to do so much. And then they go back and, and then they're back in their daily lives. Yeah. And, and so sort of keeping that momentum going is uh, absolutely crucial for a partnership. And I think that's also where Swissnext sort of steps in because that's, you know, we want partnerships to happen. And, and that's why we, we play this mediator role. I love that you mentioned that it's important for you to for both sides to have skin in the game. Mm-hmm. I think that really automatically as a force sort of aligns you or forces you to align because in India we have this traditional framework of uh, foreign funding or development mm-hmm. funding mm-hmm. and that skewed the power dynamic that skewed the relationship of sorts mm-hmm. where they mostly perceive external organizations particularly international organizations to be a funder and and that's primarily it. And I know you don't think that that same way. No, I mean, you know, and, and we see that sometimes the reactions we, we, we get also like recently we brought some, some journalists to Switzerland, so paid most of it, but with some things we didn't pay. And, and to sort of make them understand that we think it's also must be in their interest to, you know, tell their readership about Switzerland. Um, only then actually that the product will be really good um, was, was tough. So, yeah. but it's a, you know, it's a process, it's a conversation. It's a, and then people usually understand. Yeah. And quite frankly, they also usually have the means to, 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 to do it. Yeah. So, so I think that is then when you look at it as an equal partnership, that's when partnerships are most successful. Uh, in the moment where uh, you know we tell us as partners come here and, and and teach the Indians to do this or that, that is not going to work. Yeah. Uh, neither for the Indians nor for the Swiss uh, in the long term. So, Sebastian, uh, let's talk about crypto, which is always in the news cycle for one reason or the other. <laughs> um, Switzerland has historically been a financial giant, and it's already leading in digital currencies with the crypto value at Zug. What do you think is the potential for cryptocurrencies, particularly for emerging markets like India. Mm-hmm. So, so I wouldn't call myself a cryptocurrency expert, but when you read like you know, the different articles, I think some people say there's a lot of potential and some other people think that there's really not much potential. I think with any new technology out there, whether it's crypto or, or any other one, but especially for crypto, I guess the, 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 the risks and the, the opportunities. And so it depends on how you look at the balance of those those two two things. And and so why has Switzerland taken a um, sort of more progressive liberal approach to 
to cryptocurrency. So as you said, there's a long history of, of financial institutions. But at the same time, like 10 years ago, 2009, we had a financial crisis. Yeah. And, and that really sort of um, shocked also the Swiss financial center. Uh, the, the Swiss bank secrecy, as we knew it before, uh, no longer exists. So uh, nowadays, basically, uh, it's almost the same like, like you know, investing your, your money in Germany or any other country. And so that really made people and in, uh, in the finance sector in, in Switzerland think, okay, what is the, how can we differentiate ourselves? Where can we be innovative in the finance sector? And uh, that's a really, when crypto came, people see, saw in it an, an, an opportunity to stay ahead of the game yeah. when it comes to finance. So having this crisis actually was a good thing in, in, in a way because it, it opened their mind for being innovative, for being you know, open for such technologies. And then the, the Swiss government's approach to sort of set the framework, as I explained in the beginning, so um, there are no... Uh, there's no ban of cryptocurrency. Um, at the same time, they say, well, if you want to have trust in cryptocurrency, there has to be a strong enforcement also of yeah. um, of regulations, so to avoid fraud. Just maybe, you know, we have to look at that to understand where India comes from. So India, I think, comes from a very different place than, than Switzerland in that respect. Uh, and, and so I think there, there are two sort of narratives uh, all over. So there's one... Uh, you know the narrative of, of you know the, the socialist past of of, uh, of India with a strong uh, government, I would say rather interventionist, um, that wants to combat you know corruption and fraud, yeah. and, and so when when they ban cryptocurrency, want to ban cryptocurrency, it comes from a good place because they want to protect the consumer. The, but there's also this other narrative actually. So when you read this book by um, Nana Nilekani, uh, he said he explained in 1980s actually computers were seen as something very negative as well. Yeah. So uh, and now here we are, you know, 20, 25 years later, and actually it's it's a backbone of the Indian service industry. So you know, what's the potential for for, for India? We we have to see where, where it's going. I think there's a lot of potential, especially blockchain. I think in in the short term, this uh, proposed ban on cryptocurrency yeah. will not be too negative. I think. I mean, we've, we've seen other countries, China and others. I think in the long term, I think cryptocurrency is here to stay and so in the long term if, if you ban something any ban i think in the past has those opportunity costs yeah and and the longer you wait the higher those costs will will be uh and, and so in the, in that sense um I, I hope of course that's of that approach to cryptocurrency will evolve but at the same time i think there's an understanding why uh, it has been banned so I, I completely agree with you. I think India comes from a slightly protectionist policy framework because it, it is looking out for the consumer. Because mm -hmm. whenever sensationalism in economic markets plays mm -hmm. out, it, it ends poorly and the, the guy on the street gets, gets hurt. So I, I understand where it's coming from. What I appreciated was when Switzerland, for example, took this direction of uh, being liberal mm -hmm. because it's thinking about what the future is and it's trying to control its locus of control. It's trying to stay relevant in a digital uh, economy, so to say. Mm -hmm. I think we have those opportunities, we have those challenges. And that's why for me, it's very interesting uh, how you think about this Zug model, right? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit more about that and, and how probably maybe it came together or, or what happens actually at Zug that makes it such a, uh, the crypto valley? So uh, just about six weeks ago, I went with the Indian delegation to, uh, to Switzerland to study blockchain and, and the blockchain ecosystem. And as part of that, of course, we also went to, to Zug. So for those who don't know Zug, um, 
Um, quite frankly, until recently, there was not much happening there. So, so uh, you know, companies went there because like the, the tax was were really low. So it was a bit of a, a sleeping town, uh, 25 minutes away from Zurich. So, so what happened actually a couple of years was that, that Ethereum was was looking for a place to de- develop their their platform, and somehow they um, they found Zook. Uh, they had discussions with the local authorities, and the local authorities they were quite open actually to in terms of regulation and in terms of like accommodating them, taxes, etc. And so that, that actually made them to rent an Airbnb uh, in the city of, of Zug. So having Ethereum there sort of then attracted other people in a, in a small ecosystem sort of started building up before this whole crypto thing was a, was a hype. Right? Yeah. And, and I think what, what really helped were like the, the local authorities, like the municipality and the cantons of the state of Zug. Uh, really supporting that as far as they could within their within what the law uh, allowed, uh, and then once you have some key people there, they will attract more people, right? Yeah. Uh, and so nowadays, actually, when you walk through Zook, you wouldn't see much of this crypto hype. So Zook looks still like it looked 15 years ago. Uh, and in fact, because it's so close to Zurich, I would you know say there's a crypto valley from Zook to 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 Zurich. Yeah, kind and of like the Bay Area. Exactly, like <laughs> it the engulfs Bay Area. everything. But now, even including, I think Geneva will yeah. actually become more and more important now with uh, Libra having their yes. uh, seat and uh, office and in, um, in, in Geneva. So 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 there, I think, may be another sort of ecosystem sort of mushrooming. Yeah. Um, and, and so that, that's what I said in the beginning. So Switzerland being really small, having good infrastructure, so people being really mobile in a very easy way, uh, really helped sort of building also that that ecosystem. Uh, and then having the financial center, of course, in, in, in Zurich, sort of, you, had, uh, you know, quite a few bankers, stories of, of bankers that, you know, did their career in UBS and Credit Suisse, then exited and started their crypto venture or, mm. or something like that. So, you know, you have the talent there. So I, I'm not sure there's a Zug model, but again, I think it, it was about uh, favoring framework conditions. It was about an ecosystem system people coming together maybe it was a little bit of luck of course yeah. to an extent and then then the government and authorities that actually were quite open to support that there's a similar origin story for bangalore also because mm-hmm. it started out with uh, outsourcing offshoring and then it got into this this sort of ecosystem that attracted technologists exactly. and then it grew from there because they they served out their careers they wanted to get into startups and and that's how it happened here as well the reason why this is interesting is because regulators often look at what happens organically and then try to clone it or create conditions mm-hmm. to scale it up. Like, mm-hmm. for example, Bahrain has a sandbox mm-hmm. where they're trying to provide a, an open regulatory environment so that if you're a crypto startup, if you're a blockchain startup, you can work with their uh, federal bank, their mm-hmm. reserve bank to, to pilot it out. Mm-hmm. So um, this is the interesting part that governments look at models that happen organically and then try to scale those up or replicate those because they're mm-hmm. looking at somehow transferring that economic mobility that maybe happened out of the right circumstances coming together mm-hmm. and being more actionable around it. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how this plays out, though. Yeah, yeah. So, so, yes. so we, we, we're working on a few follow-ups, actually, on this, uh, on this tour. So we, we see especially the state of Telangana being really, uh, you know, being really progressive and, and really pushing for, for blockchain um, on, on different levels, blockchain universities and education, blockchain, you know, district and ecosystem. So, so we hope that there will be some, some outcomes of, of, of that. And, um, and so we're planning maybe doing some sort of like an Indo-Swiss blockchain research forum here. Um, so I think it's a big topic. Yeah, great. I'm glad you're working towards that. Yeah, I hope we can do something together. So 2030 is going to come in probably sooner than we think. So as you think about the cross-border collaboration opportunities between Switzerland and India, 
uh, what what sticks out? What what do you think is that you're working towards for the next few years? Mm-hmm. Where are the big, uh, the blue ocean opportunities? Yes. So so we have actually defined uh, last year four focus areas. And if I look at them, I think they, one way or another, maybe with different names, but still will be true and in, in, relevant in, in 10 years. So so one is, is health tech. Um, so the entire digital health there, I think, is, is, is huge. And in fact, right now, there's a global digital health partnership, which I think India is uh, presiding. And uh, so Switzerland just became part of that as well. So I think through different forms, I'm encouraging collaboration in digital health between Switzerland and, and India think will be a big uh, big focus for the next couple of years and will be even more important in 10 years let's say you know ai in health like um, diagnostics yeah. imaging etc another area is is renewable energy so india's thirst for yeah. renewable energy is huge and with that comes you know thirst for for new technologies and i think that's where switzerland actually being a very small country uh, in order for our industry to survive they have to look outside and so India seems like a natural partner in, in, in that sense. So, so we look at that. I think we just had recently uh, e-mobility delegations. So mm-hmm. E-mobility will be... Uh, huge. Or the mobility sector in general will see huge disruption yeah. in the next five, ten years. So I think there's that. Something that we haven't started working on yet much, but I think that uh, is quite promising is the space industry. Uh, I think a few days ago what yeah. uh, India can, can do. Yeah. Um, and it's not quite yet on the radar, I think, of Swiss stakeholders. So I, th- I think they would like to do more. Uh, I think India will be even more powerful in that area in, in, in 10 years. Um, so I think that will be definitely an area for, for further collaboration. Completely agree with you. Especially mobility and renewable energy. We need those to, mm-hmm. to scale up uh, our vision of what we want to be as a nation. So a few years ago, the World Economic Forum, based out of Geneva, sort of uh, spoke a lot about fourth industrial revolution technologies and the impact it was having on global economies. Mm-hmm. From an Indian context, what sectors do you think are uh, most ripe for disruption with uh, fourth industrial revolution technologies? Again, I, th- I think it's it's in the mobility sector, automotive sector. Yeah. I think that that is uh, is going to see a huge shift. Um, I, I think anything to do with with manufacturing. So we see that the manufacturing companies, uh, Swiss ones, and in, in Pune, for example, um, we recently organized a workshop on AI, mm-hmm. and and so how AI can help making their processes and and um, and products more more efficient. Um, I think that is that is definitely another one. You know, even the life science sector, I think, will see a huge disruption actually. Yeah. So with uh, with 4.0. Yeah, everyone's talking about personalized medicine, right? How do we go to genetic level to treat everyone? So there's that and, and, and there's also like the, the the cost factor, right? So 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 one thing so, so I think the debate here in India is, is mostly, you know, having access to to healthcare. Uh, in Switzerland the debate is more about the cost of healthcare. Mm-hmm. So we spend um, around 12% of our GDP on 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 healthcare. I think in comparison, India is about one percent. If I yeah. if I did my research, one correctly. to two percent, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, so I think that's maybe also where Switzerland can learn something from from India in in, in the sense of developing um, new methods and new 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 products to that bring down healthcare costs. 
through AI and again in diagnostics yeah. maybe, um, or even in in, um, in treatment or, or when we look at the preventive health uh, healthcare, I think huge topic also in, in in Switzerland. So maybe there we can sort of meet in the middle and look at six or seven percent. <laughs> yeah, I, I frugal innovation is just our backbone in terms of how we've approached solving problems, and I do think deep tech, uh, med tech, include, including that, is is a good opportunity for us to export actually to the world because rising healthcare costs is a global concern. It's a global concern, absolutely. Yeah. A few years ago, we we saw that the uh, the Swiss were going through massive sort of transformative automation as well. Mm-hmm. And there was this proposal uh, or referendum on universal basic income. Mm-hmm. What's your take on it? So, so, I mean, that's related to this whole discussion of automation, right? Uh, something that not only concerns Switzerland, but most other countries, actually. Yes. Um, and and so uh, there have been studies in Switzerland that looked at that topic. And so some studies came to the conclusion that, uh, in theory, in principle, uh, about 50% of all jobs in Switzerland could be automized in one way or another. In reality, of course, it turns out uh, quite differently. I think when we look at this debate, um, there's a lot of fear, but then... I think, and again, some studies looked at, okay, so we, we, we will be losing some jobs. At the same time, automation will create a lot of jobs. And so, so far in Switzerland, actually, the it has been positive, the, the experience. Of course, and there the, are these experiments with the universal basic income. So we, we had a vote on that, yeah. uh, I think, two years ago, which was rejected by two-thirds of the Swiss population. Um, there are different um, uh, uh, experiments going on, I think it was in Finland, yeah. uh, I think in Canada as well. Yeah. Uh, and I just read, uh, actually, yesterday that, that those pilot projects sort of stopped and or, or yeah. failed in, in some way. So so I, th- I think there was a bit of a hype maybe two years ago. Um, nonetheless, it's a good thing to think about different uh, different models, but maybe the um, universal basic income model is at this stage probably too radical. But, you know, it, it's good to have this debate. It, it helps us to think differently. It helps us to think about the consequences. And, and I, th- I think that the conclusion of that was... It, it comes back to, to education again. So how can we adapt to these kind of changes and, uh, and in fact, you know, rather use automation to enhance what the human being is doing yeah. rather than look at it as a either or. So, Upskilling is a big component of this sort of uh, universal basic income debate where everyone gets uh, a monthly paycheck. Mm-hmm. The, the reason why we sort of found it very interesting was that it, it, we don't have a social net in mm-hmm. India. We mm-hmm. don't have the, the same sort of security mechanisms for social welfare that exist in other economies. For us, this is very interesting because it sort of takes away the risk. It de-risks you that your livelihood is not necessarily connected to your employment status. Mm-hmm. And that itself at a, as, at a thought level is transformative. It is, but personally, I'm I'm not sure. It's uh, I'm not very convinced that yeah. it's it's going to 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 work. Um, I mean, I think what the study showed was that people were, you know, more happy actually. Um, of course, when you get like two thousand, you know, US dollars free money, free money doesn't hurt. Who won't be happy? Um, but but you know, uh, going to work actually is is still it's more than just earning money. It's about being integrated in in an organization, uh, you know, being productive, uh, you know, and, and, and seeing some some value in that. Yeah. So um, so we have to see where this this thing this this debate takes us. Yeah, com- completely agree with you. All the studies show that it doesn't work uh, for generating differential employment or additional employment. I think the 
opportunity here is more for for example to look at probably qualified basic income mm-hmm. maybe making it off uh, available only to the most marginalized yeah of course maybe that's a direction but uh, the fact that we are having this debate or having this conversation matters because more people need to talk about this the future of social welfare mm-hmm. and that's missing i think in india at least no and having a debate and discussion on what what is the future uh, of society basically right of of how how do we live together and what is the role of government in all of that another revolution we're going through actually is is absolutely crucial and in fact i think when we speak about new technologies and i think we are very often uh, forget talking to the social scientists or to the human you know those who study humanities um i think that has to come like ethics in uh, in ai or in in blockchain or others uh, is is a big big topic i think that should be even more highlighted in the future and and europe is taking the lead in that because uh, i know munich uh facebook has just started a center on uh, uh ethics and artificial intelligence mm-hmm. i know there are many research projects happening in switzerland as well focused on uh eliminating biases and algorithms mm-hmm. so this is a big topic for the future mm-hmm. just going a bit inward and and looking more closely at swiss next the organization mm-hmm. you're a leader leaders are often charged with this responsibility to help others realize the best version of themselves how do you support your team at swissnex right so maybe i should maybe give some background on 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 swissnex so swissnex is is, a, is an organization which um whose mission is to connect the dots as we say in education research and innovation between so in our case india and and switzerland um we have a very much bit of a startup culture i think that's sort of the part of our dna uh, a very young team at the same time here in bangalore in particular we also consulate two very different organizational cultures actually that yeah. you bring together and and so one you have sort of again like startup e and, and and very sort of uh, um you know opportunity driven and you like to take risks and 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 you're allowed to make mistakes and then the you know consulate which traditionally even though that is also changing a little bit but traditionally as a government representation uh, is more risk averse uh, and and um and maybe more traditional than than swissnex so bring that together actually was was one of the challenges that being said i, th- I think we did pretty good job um but you said like you know how can i help build the culture so I think as a leader uh, you can you can do only so much so so you can be sort of a, a role model of course but at the end of the day at the end of the day it is up to the team to to build that culture uh, each individual so i think uh, so giving them responsibility uh, making sure that they understand that it, it is their role their responsibility to you know have a work culture which fits them uh, is part of what you know i think is my my role is um and so i can i can influence of course i mean it's a bit like a i see myself a bit like a gardener mm-hmm. right so 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 you have you know different if you want plants and, and flowers yeah. and, and everyone has its own uh, beauty um and, and you have to support them grow in 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 different ways uh, and sometimes you have to rearrange them um so it's it's a constant uh, process sometimes you know flowers need more space to grow yeah. uh or you, t- you have to take them somewhere else because they they want to be in a different garden so and and sometimes you have no sun so you have yeah. to be patient as well right so so the the up and downs uh in in any organization so in, in that way i think so sort of bringing some clarity giving people the freedom uh, being a role model uh, giving them the responsibility to to build the culture they want i think is part of 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 my job yeah. uh and and having you know constant conversations with them on on these kind of topics 
Yeah, a complaint I hear often from most sort of employees in India is micromanagement. I think this the space itself is such a huge deal because it communicates to your employees or your team members that mm-hmm. we believe in you. We mm-hmm. trust that you know what you're doing mm-hmm. and we'll give you the space and the room to deliver it on your own. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's great. You know, having this autonomy, I think, is absolutely uh, uh, crucial. I think that is where I came from, and I think that that's where I was very fortunate in my own career, that I always had uh, supervisors that, that gave me that autonomy, that freedom also to make mistakes. And then, so I think if, if you had had this training in your own career, it, it helps you also maybe then to, to convey that to your, you know, to your team. Some of the sectors and, and, and bodies that you interact with are think tanks, universities, government agencies. They're quite diverse. And typically, these sort of large monolithic organizations are slow moving. Mm-hmm. How do you sort of build momentum or inspire urgency in these sort of stakeholders? Mm-hmm. I think so. The first thing, I'm not sure always government is as is, is much uh, sort of slow moving than, let's say, larger corporations. I think if you look at as soon as the organization is large and has yeah. several thousands of people, automatically processes are a bit a bit slower. So when you look at large corporates, I think sometimes also they're quite quite slow, yeah. uh, even compared to maybe some government agencies. So so I think it's 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 a matter also of of, of a government uh, sorry um, organization size. So how do you bring this urgency? I have a background in political sciences, and this is this one uh, framework uh, which says it needs two things for change to happen. One is a sense of urgency, as as you said, but that alone very often is not enough. In order to have real change, actually, there has to be an underlying shift in, in beliefs. And and I think I think at Swissnext, uh, with regards to sort of being uh, in the Swiss collaborations grow, I think we're still in that in that phase where we're trying to, you know, push for that shift of, of belief. So sort of changing the image of India in, in, in Switzerland, trying to explain to our Swiss stakeholders what India is all about. Sometimes I have a bit the feeling that especially when you do, when you read the newspapers, it's very often that the negative stuff that, that comes through. So it's a very one-sided uh, image that, that comes through in, in, in Europe. And so showing to our Swiss stakeholders the different side of uh, India, I think, is part of our uh, of our role. So then, you know, helping to, to create the shift in, in the belief system and then creating urgency in a sense that we say, okay, well, you know, in, in three months we have this platform coming up. It is now or never. Please come and, you know, a great opportunity to meet and learn about, about India. Um, of course, we also create a sense of urgency by, by saying, you know, look at the Netherlands, for example. So they're coming later this year with a huge delegation. Look at what the French are doing, you know, very yeah. impressive in, in the space area. Um, so, of course, we, we tell these kind of things to our Swiss partners. Um, and, and they will act to it if, if they believe really that, you know, there is some um, opportunity for them out there in India. So it's sort of a continuous engagement process, uh, explaining, staying in touch, changing their belief system, and, and then creating opportunities for them to come and, and create this sense of urgency. And when you look at these relationships, how much time do you sort of invest in them? Is it a multi-year relationship? What's, what's your approach to this? Because oftentimes, yes, startups run out of capital, mm-hmm. other folks run out of patience. How do you, what are your expectations when working with these sort of stakeholders so that you're in sync? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it is a multi-year uh, process. You know, so we're just now, uh, next year we'll be celebrating 10, 10 years of Swissnext. So we're now uh, in, in the process of looking back, actually, what has been happening. And, and you see it takes several years for partnerships to grow, to blossom. Um, and, and so to one of the sort of key aspects of 
Uh, what you're trying to do is we call it continuous engagement. So, or, or basically make, having a systematic key account man, uh, management with startups. So we call them up on a regular basis. We meet them on a regular basis every time we're gonna go, we go to Switzerland. Give them updates, um, you know, over Skype in meetings, etc. So um, there, I think I'm also very fortunate because I have a team uh, and, and team members who have been there for five, six, seven years. So they they were able to really build a very strong relationship with our key partners in Switzerland. Um, and, and in that sense, I think it's it's uh, it's quite easy, and, and people, um, you know, um, trust us a lot. And building up this this trust actually is, is absolutely uh, key in our relationship management. As we sort of wind down the interview, I just want to know about privacy and how how you make sense of it. So the Swiss have always been known for, to some degree, the the bank secrecy, but also Europe in general is very pro privacy. Mm-hmm. We're living in this. At, era of attention economy and and everyone claims data to be the new oil. How do you make sense of this dichotomy between privacy and public utility? Data for good, data for intelligence. Is there some sort of feasible middle path that you think uh, we can we can do? So I'm not sure there's one middle path. Just recently actually we had a an event on on cyber ethics and we came to the conclusion that you know different cultures have very different um, understandings of of what's a good middle path, actually, what's a good balance, uh, and, and again, like being a historian, if you look at the history of a country, I think that plays a huge role. So, are, are you a country that has a history of tensions, of of maybe even terrorism, uh, or or do you have a history of, of, of rather peaceful living together? So, then your understanding will change as to how much privacy you have to give up in order to ensure that you know there's a public safety uh, out there. So I think, um, again, I think each country has to sort of uh, answer that for, for themselves. At the same time, um, you know, these discussions, um, I think, take a lot of time and, and should be more highlighted now nowadays. Um, we are today celebrating 70 years of the Geneva Convention on Humanitarian Aid. And uh, I think there are many people in Switzerland who believe that something similar for, for digital governance, uh, for cyber ethics, would be needed. So, mm-hmm. so having a framework of principles where actually all the different countries uh, come together and agree that this is how we should look at, at the balance of, of, uh, of privacy, right? And um, privacy and public utility. Um, and so we, we're working on that, on, on, on making that happen. And, and hopefully then at some point there will be a conference, maybe yeah. in Geneva, maybe in Switzerland or somewhere else, but stakeholders coming together and agreeing on some principles of how this uh, digital governance should, should look like um, and, and what the you know, proper ethics when we think about these kind of questions. Yeah, there are many nations out there who just talk about blanket regulations to, to keep tech in control, but I mm-hmm. think we do need this active cross-border collaborative attitude when it comes to governing uh, data exchange and data localization and, and technology in general. The Swiss have been great at being that, you know, the the convening power for this sort of movement in the past, and perhaps uh, they'll take that mantle on in the future as well. I hope so very much. I think we're working on it at least. <laughs> great. Thanks again, Sebastian, for joining us on, on the show today. Um, what was your experience like? It was a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I think it was a pleasure. Egomonk is an impact publisher, bringing organizations closer to the communities they want to serve and the leaders they wish to influence. We combine insight, context, and experience to deliver asymmetric outcomes and are driven by our goal to positively impact a billion human lives by 2030. 
If you would like to collaborate with us, then please visit our website, egomonk.com, or send me an email at sartaj at egomonk.com. And if you like this episode, then please do share it with others and consider rating and reviewing us wherever you listen to your podcasts.